Welcome to Critical Transit Podcast, episode 29. On today's show, I interview Mick Rush from Metro Transit in Madison, Wisconsin. We talk about some of the challenges facing Metro Transit and many other transit agencies like it. It is, it is certainly not unique. Uh, Madison Metro was awarded the Outstanding Public Transportation Award from the American Public Transportation Association in 2012. So you can hear about that and uh, find out more about operating transit on an isthmus. Uh, find out what an isthmus is if you don't know. Uh, all that and more coming up. For this episode, I was in Madison, Wisconsin, and great place to be, uh, very bike-friendly, as uh, you, you, those of you who follow my website may have seen. I posted about uh, what it means to be a bike-friendly city. This is something that we hear about all the time, and people are always talking about, oh, you know, Portland, Minneapolis, and all these other places, and, you know, being bike-friendly and all this stuff. And um, to me, it's, it's often hard to understand what that means and you know what in, in the context of of living your day-to-day life in a city because my experience has really been in bigger cities where there are there is bike infrastructure but it still can be quite stressful to bike around uh, and then you get these small towns with no bike infrastructure whatsoever that can be mostly pleasant because there's not much traffic but you still get a lot of problems uh, with drivers that don't know anything about dealing with bikes so uh, well, that said, I had a great time in Madison, and is uh, is very bike friendly. There's a lot of unique infrastructure, uh, contraflow bike lanes. There's um, shared bus bikeway in downtown. There are places where bus and bike lanes are done in very careful and creative ways to make sure that uh, they minimize the conflict between those users and also provide safe spaces for both and you know priority spaces for both. There are a number of bike paths, including one that goes pretty much through the downtown and Madison Wisconsin is itself located on an isthmus which is a strip of land between two water bodies in this case between Lake Mendota and Lake Monona it is a strip of land that ranges from about uh, half a mile to maybe three quarters of a mile wide and so it's uh, as I said it's, it's very easy to walk across the isthmus and there is no transit going uh, east-west uh, everything is running north-south, or actually the geography is a little turned, so it's not quite that. But it just just say, you know, in, in one direction, all the bus routes are funneling through on combined routes. Uh, there are three corridors that the buses run on, and, you know, very combined, uh, fairly high frequency, and uh, some more than others. And then, you know, they, the routes split off at the end, and they uh, connect between transfer points. At, that, that's how the system is organized. It, uh, a number of transfer points. There is uh, the, the Capitol Square, which is around the state capitol in downtown, uh, where all the buses loop the capitol. And then there are transfer points at the northeast, west, and south side of the city. You know, after you get off of the isthmus, 
and a couple other ones out in, in suburban locations. And so uh, the, the system functions very well, and because it's an isthmus and a narrow area, there is not as much space for uh, car parking, and so a lot more people use transit than might otherwise in a similar city. In On today's show, I have an interview with Mick Rush from Metro Transit in Madison, which is a city-run transit agency, and you know, we talk about some of the challenges facing Metro Transit uh, probably the top one being the increasing ridership and the crowding. You know, as I've said before, as a transit agency, you know, you always want your ridership to go up, and you want to carry a lot of people, and and you want your the service that you're providing to be useful to people. And but sometimes it gets to the point where you just you don't know how you're going to manage. Uh, you can't carry all of these people that you have to carry, and so. Uh, then it becomes a, a real challenge, as most transit agencies in cities or in big cities are dealing with these days. Um, ridership is going up and up everywhere I, I go and every place I talk to. And uh, Metro is trying a couple of different ways to try to deal with that, from uh, you know exploring the use of articulated buses to um, looking at speeding up fare collection and introducing uh, bus rapid transit. Maybe that'll speed up service. And they can do more with what they have there. Um, and they're ultimately, they're looking at a capital plan to uh, think about how they can move forward in the future to expand to meet uh, current and future demand. And, uh, you know, these are all good problems to have. So um, I was pleased to be able to sit down with Mick and talk about these and some of the operational issues that they deal with. I'm here at Madison Metro Transit headquarters mm-hmm. with Mick Rush, who's the yep. director of marketing. Sure. Yep, Metro Transit. Hi, Mick. I'm, hi, how are you? Good, thanks for doing this. Sure, no problem. Great. Um, so I, I, I wanted to come chat with you. As you know, I'm, I'm touring transit systems around the country. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Madison is a, it's a very very interesting city. has a very unique layout. And Madison Metro got the APTO Award for Outstanding Transit Agency. Yes, we did. Yep. So, we're very excited about that. Um, that actually came. We had we had a record ridership in 2011 for um, 40 years. It's a 40 year re- record ridership, and it's actually it's probably longer than 40 years. But we don't have the data that goes back any further than 40 years or so. But we actually went up to uh, 14.9 million rides, which was like 1.3 million more than the year before. So that was one of the main reasons we got that APTA award. Um, one of the other reasons is that we just started, um, like across the country, we've started um, promoting mobile apps, and we've had actually the University of Wisconsin. I know one of the, your questions about is our interactions with them. Well, we didn't purchase this mobile app. We these uh, people came to us and said, you know, we we want to figure out how to ride the bus, and so we created these apps using your data. I uh, hope you don't mind. And. Uh, <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> yeah, so they created these really nice apps. There's um, one called Bus Radar Madison, and another one's called uh, Mobile UW. Mobile UW is actually affiliated with the University of Wisconsin. And all these guys that created these apps, they actually were a small group of guys that just did several different projects. And actually, after they showed it to us, we um, kind of embraced it and started um, promoting it to other people. and Or promoting it not as our own, but as we're working with these guys. And as we did that... Um, our ridership, I don't know if it was at the same time, but um, ridership really took off. And I know there's lots of things going around the country with uh, gas prices and that kind of thing, but it just kind of all came together, and uh, our ridership just really kind of uh, bloomed uh, at the second part of the year in 2011. So we're really excited about 
Very getting cool. that award. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's that's a it's a really you know a good thing to, to be be proud of. So. Um, and Madison is, you know, very unique, you know, compared to other places. It's uh, it's got a very interesting layout. Uh, yeah, it's got two giant lakes on either side of what we call the isthmus. And to get from one side of town to the other side of town, you have to go through this narrow isthmus, and there's like two main roads that go through the, the isthmus area. So we don't have our, our routes have to transfer and kind of all have to funnel through the isthmus area, and we can't. Um, like in Milwaukee, for example, where they have a grid system and it's e- easy to have, you know, service every 15 minutes or every 10 minutes or that kind of thing. We have to have these schedules because our routes more have to meander through town and all funnel through this one area. And so it does make a challenge to um, provide service. So it's things that we have that other larger cities might not have because we have to all go through these, these two area of lakes. Yeah, and the the service, most of the routes are every half an hour, but they're all, they're all kind of combined and they're all, you know, really frequent and Yep. Oh, they're real frequent in the, once we get into the downtown area where the University of Wisconsin is. So, so yeah, we have a lot of service that kind of circulates around on both sides of town, and then they all funnel through the downtown area, through the University of Wisconsin, to the Capitol Square area, and then go out you know the other side. But if we have something like some sort of event or some sort of construction, we call summer our, you know, summer is just construction season around here. So um, when that happens, it just slows. Everything would kind of get locked clogged up in the downtown area and some guys have to the drivers have to get through that area and get through the other side of town and that always is a challenge every summer uh-huh. yeah and so uh, that's that's really interesting i wonder how that affects the the ridership patterns it does actually we had um in terms of ridership our ridership um last year went down a little bit and one of the reasons it went down is i went down about three hundred thousand rides and one of the things that we think contributed to it is the university of wisconsin actually lowered their amount of contracted service we know that's part of it but the other part of it is they pretty much tore up the roads throughout the entire campus area. And so we know it was just so convoluted for drivers to get through there, for buses to go through there. The schedules were just so kind of haphazard and hard to serve that we think that really affected, those detours really affected ridership in that area through the whole summer. And we think that was part of the reason that the ridership went down in that area because um, it did go down. However, at the beginning of this year, uh, in January, our ridership is up 8%, so it wasn't a trend, but we think detours like that really kind of do affect. It's just easier to walk sometimes when you got that much, much road construction going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, very, it's very cold here, and uh, <laughs> so, you know, the yes. winters, I guess, in, when I, I worked in Boston, you know, the winter was always busier ridership, busier for ridership in the summer, more people walked. Yes, <laughs> and we have a lot of, I saw one of your questions on bicyclists, and we have a lot of people, I don't, I'm not sure other parts of the country, but... We have a lot of all-weather bicyclists here, and um, it, it has to get so snowy or so cold that even the bicyclists will get on the bus rather than ride their bikes. And so, yeah, the ridership really does go up when it gets way too cold or way too uh, treacherous for someone to ride a bike. But, well, they're out there riding bikes now, but they were also bike riding a month ago, and it's just really as soon as it's, like, safety. I shouldn't even say safe for the bicyclists to get out there. They ride in some very treacherous, snowy conditions out there, but uh, once it's too cold or too snowy, then our... Uh, buses get even more jam-packed because the, <laughs> the and, and it's good because it's, it's good because you know in order to have a, like a bike-friendly city you need you need that interplay between the transit and, and the bikes and yeah. I was gonna ask about that you know what um, how does uh, the fact that that the city is is very bikeable and a lot of people do bike around here I wonder mm-hmm. how that plays in, in transit uh, as far as you know interaction between bikes and transit and 
uh, operator training and that sort of thing? Uh, well, it's, it's, it's interesting. Well, first, I'll say we have bike racks on all of our buses, and one of the biggest complaints about the bike racks is that they're always full. And so <laughs> people use them all the time. We know we have a lot of people that ride part of the way and then ride the bus part of the way. Um, the other thing is one of the, our biggest uh, safety issues downtown are bicyclists on the road, and we have that's part of our driver training. Drivers are get refresher training every year, and uh, that's one of the biggest things we talk about. In fact, we've even started having drivers... As part of our training, we'll have a driver on a bike as a bus goes by so that they're aware of what the uh, point of view is of the bicyclist, just so they can see what their actions are doing out there. And we're not doing it to not be safe, we just want to give the perspective of the bicyclist. So that's part of our refresher training. Um, also, you know, we have, um, we have bus video that uh, all of our buses have five cameras, on, and one of them points out into traffic. So if we have a, bi a bicyclist if we have just had an incident that might have gone poorly or could have gone better, we have video of it and we use that to coach uh, drivers on how to handle things better or to just be more aware of uh, bicyclists that are out on the street. So um, it is something that we see a lot of. We actually had a consultant that came through here and he's gone through a lot of different college campuses throughout the country and he said that what our drivers deal with in terms of you know bicyclists in the roadway is the most complicated uh, bicyclist transit interaction that he's seen anywhere in the country. So mm -hmm. our drivers are dealing a lot with, and they do their best to, uh, you know, find that balance of being, you know, extremely safe and being extremely courteous. And we also have to communicate with the bicyclist uh, organizations and the bicyclist folks and, you know, let them know our concerns. And we try to meet with them too and just kind of ask what we all have, obviously have to share the road out there. So it's a very active uh, thing that we do every year to make sure it's safe out there. Yeah, and, and um, you know it's interesting to me because I, I, I do both modes and, and mm -hmm. uh, you know and so I, I know you know when I'm when I'm biking like I know what is going on inside the bus and what right. the bus driver is dealing with but um, you know a lot of, I feel like a lot of people don't and I was wondering if you could explain sort of what what is involved in, you know what is good practice as far as you know driving a bus and around bicyclists like what are some of the things that, that you teach bus drivers? What do we teach bus drivers? Well, we you know we teach them like I said the biggest thing is just tell them that. Uh, well, or always be safe, so that we get, you know, give them plenty of space. Um, you know, we have the rules of the road. I'm sorry, I don't have them in front of me, but we basically, have, <laughs> you know, have the rules. And I mean, basically, the the, D, the you know the DOT you know type of things. We explain all of that to them. We um, just tell them, you know, safety is the number one priority. So give give them adequate adequate room to uh, you know just be in their space. You know, we teach them they they have their own lane and. I don't have all the rules. I'm not the you know the expert on those rules, but we teach them everything that you you get in your you know driver safety things anywhere. Um, they they have to um, always be alert, always be aware, and like I said, with that video uh, on the cameras, we pull that a lot, and we just have people be very aware that if some you know crazy thing happened, they know that that could happen, and just be ready for basically anything. We had unfortunately we've had a lot of incidents where bicyclists have like run a red light or done something that they've hit the side of the bus and it's just something that's scary that's it, if they're not following the rules of the road it, it could be uh we had one last year actually that um it was a bicyclist just just went right through a red light and a bus driver saw it just kind of coming through the side and was able to just kind of turn the, the bus just enough and then the bicyclist hit the back of the bus away from the the wheel and i think just him reacting that fast and knowing something was happening and reacting quickly I think I'd saved the bicyclist's life and we also had that all on video and we show that at refresher training and just make people aware so we, we tell them to be aware of um, bicycles on the street um, you, know, you know be courteous be safe um, it's just 
something that we just focus uh, our training and then just our everyday speaking with drivers. We just remind them of that. And they're very well aware they don't need the reminding uh, from us, but uh, we go, go over it anyway just to be safe. So um, just safety and being alert is what we teach them. Cool, cool. Um, so we, we talked about university a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's a big university. Yeah. Uh, with 30, 30 or 40,000 students, right? Yep, yep. So, that, roughly. Um, so how does that affect the, the service that you provide, and, and what are some of the issues dealing with the university? They contract service with us, and so right now our biggest uh, issues is they're having um, their budget. Uh, they have their own budget issues or budget limitations, and they have only so much service they can put on a campus. And unfortunately, the amount of uh, budget that they have to put on service is not enough. We have our our buses out on campus are just jam-packed and we've been trying to find a balance between the amount of budget that's available to the campus and having enough service that can actually serve how many people are on campus. And so right now, as I said, we uh, had to cut service due to budgetary reasons last year on campus and we did see our ridership drop a little bit, but we also saw our buses get even more full. So it's kind of trying to find a balance of you know the amount of budget available and the demand that's out there and so right now um, actually that's it is we have a huge demand for service in the campus area and uh, we're not quite able to, to meet it yeah and I mean you're not the only ones right um, <laughs> has, um, have you had are those the busiest routes over there the, the 80 the 80 series yeah well, those circulate through the campus and actually the students are not only riding that they also have uh, university Students and the university employees, they have bus pass programs, and basically they uh, have these magnetic cards, and when they swipe the card, we just track it on our fare box, and we send those organizations a bill at the end of uh, each semester or each each month. And so those um, students are riding from all over town. And actually, I used to go to the university several years ago, and we all lived right in the downtown area before there was the bus pass program. And now I've noticed that the areas we all lived in when we were here have kind of broken up to all over the city because now you can live further off campus and get to some quieter areas and some you know affordable areas that are outside of the downtown area and just get on the bus using your bus pass. So it's kind of changed where people live in town and where they interact. It's really kind of even changed the economy because uh, transit has spread you know, spread the, the students out further into the city. Yeah, that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so the uh, other thing we were going to talk about is um, the winter weather. Mm -hmm. um, so this, it gets cold up here. Yeah. It's, um, you know, compared to most places. <laughs> and, yeah. um, so I, I thought that you guys might be experts in dealing with the conditions both in, you know, preparing and the service impacts and, and on the maintenance side as well. Yes. Um, well, I guess one of the things I've been hearing this this past winter is that we've been getting hit a lot. So we've had a lot of equipment issues, not from drivers hitting something, but because people are sliding in traffic, people are damaging buses because they're, they're you know, we're getting rear-ended or that kind of thing. So that's one of the things that we deal with that I heard this year we've had more problems with than before, and that's just luck of the draw on being out on the road. Um, this year our ridership dipped a little bit last year because we had this crazy storm that um, we had to shut down service for two days. And so that was roughly 150,000 rides, 200,000 rides, which is just about all the ridership dip we took last year. Um, so the, the, those two days. So we usually try to operate all the time, but if it's so bad that we can't even put buses out on the street safely because they were getting stuck, um, it was pretty difficult. But we got snow all winter, and we were out there in most of it, so it's uh, our drivers are getting used to it. Um, every time we get a big snowstorm, we get the news down here, and they ask us about, oh, well, you know, and they act like, well, what are you guys going to do to get everyone home safely today? And I got a driver on TV, and I was 
they're interviewing and talking about it, he goes, well, it's winter. It's what we do. So everyone's pretty used to it, and it's not really a big event for our, our drivers because that's just something they're pretty used to. Yeah. And I mean, I see you got a lot of good information on the website about uh, yeah. trying to get, out, get the messages out to customers that, you know, be ready and expect this right. and that. And, yeah. One of the things that we've done that's helped this year is those phone apps I was talking about. Those give you live arrival at the bus stops. And uh, I'm also in charge of our call center. And when I first started here, if it was a winter day where, you know, the traffic is falling apart and buses are getting delayed, we got calls, just call after call after call, and people like, where's my bus, where's this, where's that? And it was, people would get very upset because they didn't know where their bus, they didn't know if the bus was coming. And um, once we got those phone, the winter after the phone apps got up and running, our first snowstorm came through and we were all bracing for that barrage of phone calls uh, and it, it never came and we're looking outside and it's the same amount of horrible weather, the same amount of uh, bus delays. And it was because that everyone had their phone app out, and they were able to see at least how far behind their bus was, and that just kind of settled everybody down because at least they knew the bus was coming. It's not like, well, maybe it's coming, is it coming? But it just kind of that technology added a whole new level to our snow service because everyone calmed down. They knew the buses were delayed. We all knew the buses were delayed, but they knew exactly how much they were delayed, where their particular bus was, and it just kind of that kind of information helped think just to help everyone get home more safely that day because the tension levels of riders was not as high. Yeah, that's really great. And I, and I imagine that it probably promotes ridership too because especially, you know, if you don't have to wait outside for 20 minutes in the cold. Right. You can just wait and say, oh, it's coming. I got plenty of time. And obviously the buses aren't moving as fast as they normally would, you know, during a snowstorm. So you can watch that on your computer. You watch it on your phone. You can sit in the lobby, sit at your desk and wait for it to come. And it's a funny, we send out text message alerts, and especially if the buses start falling behind, like more than five or ten minutes, and we send out an alert that says, you know, buses are falling behind, we recommend, you know, looking at your trip now, and lots of bus riders are actually in this building whenever we send that text alert out. We can always see people going out the hallway and the doors slamming because everyone takes off, so we know that um, people really utilize those alerts, and we try to only send them out when there's actually something really pressing going on because we don't want people to get too used to alerts and not you know, not pay attention to anymore. So we use text alerts. We're starting to use Twitter a lot. And I, we found that the more, we could, you could put out more information, but putting out this really accurate information has just been really helpful in getting that service moving along. So it's helped our winters immensely. So better living through technology in the winter. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I like it. Yeah. Um, what, what else are you guys doing on the technology front? Um, well, let me think. I know there's like okay. two sides of technology. There's, the, there's what the customer sees and then right. there's helping manage the service. Right. Well, there's um, the phone apps are the biggest thing. We've also had, um, well, our customer service agents have all live maps so that they can track where the buses are and then they can contact or they can answer questions for customers that don't have the live information. Um, we also are starting to put QR codes on um, bus stop displays so that people can scan the code and then get live arrival. We have a lot of printed information out there, but people can scan the code on that printed information and get the live arrival information through the phone apps. So that's something pretty uh, new we're doing this year that we've been getting a lot of uh, use out of. Uh, in terms of um, technology and green practices, we've been adding hybrid buses to our fleet. And those have been very popular to the point where we're even looking at programs where we want to do a We've been kicking around the idea of doing a green program and having like green sponsorships and trying to collect enough money to convert more buses to hybrids. So the, that kind of technology has been very, very helpful. And I think that's one of the things also that led up to our APTA award too, because it just, once we got those hybrid buses, people started, people are very 
they're tech savvy here in Madison and they're also very environmentally conscious. So I think we had those two things all started coming together at the same time and it really helped uh, ridership get going. Um, we have like everyone, you can buy tickets and passes through the mail. Um, the mag stripes uh, cards we have, um, we're better able to control and check ridership with that. And we're also going to uh, get new fare boxes this year. And so we're hoping to switch to smart cards, which I know probably in Madison, that's probably behind what some of the bigger cities are doing, but um, uh, it, it'll be a, it'll be huge for us. And we haven't actually updated our fare boxes in more than 20, 20 25 years, I believe. So um, we're, we're looking to jump into the 21st century. Yeah. <laughs> well, these fare boxes you have are kind of standard around you know smaller agencies, and, yep. and uh, it's good not to jump in too soon because you know New York they're, they're Metro Card, and now it's obsolete after 20 years. So well, that's yeah, that's the <laughs> thing is we keep joking that we're like going to get this. You know, thing done, but like, what, what's going to be here in five years? What's going to be here in yeah. ten years? So we know we can't drag our feet too much. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, it's finding that kind of technology and be able to commit to it. Make sure it'll expand enough to uh, be with you for 20, 20 years or so is something that we're trying to figure out right, right. now. Any any thoughts of a foray into open payment where you can use the credit cards, or is that just not a good benefit? We've that's part of the. We're still getting presentations from um, people, and I know that's something we probably wouldn't be opposed to. I'm not sure. We've talked about that, and we've always wondered if, you know, what controls that transaction. If, uh, if the bus <laughs> would verify, I've heard the term, well, our bus going to be banks, where they're going to verify whether or not the bus technology itself, is that going to verify whether that's a good card or a bad card, or is that going to, you know, how is that all going to work? So we've talked about it, but I don't think we're quite there yet, but we hope to get technology that at least allow us to think about that once we get those installed. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. Um, Cool. So, um, oh yeah, when I talk about the State Street Mall, it's uh, it's a pedestrian and uh, basically a bus bikeway mm -hmm. in downtown, and uh, it's very rare among cities of this size. Okay. Um, how did that come to be? That is going to be the one. I think that's what you asked me about yesterday, and I don't have the information oh. on that. <laughs> I'm curious to find out some of the uh, some of the busiest or maybe the most interesting routes that, that you have. Route 6 is our main route that goes from one side of town to the other, and it uh, that's just a huge huge route for us. Um, it's one of our main, uh, it's just all the routes seem to develop off of that. Uh, route 2 is a busy route for us and it's interesting to note that all of our routes right now are busy. We're having trouble. I, I've heard the term, I've heard the percentage were like 30 to 40 percent over capacity. Um, buses are packed. Before, you know, they were back, packed during rush hour. Now we call our rush hour where we're packed. It's pretty much eight to nine hours during the weekday from like <laughs> eight in the nine in the morning till five or six at night. We're actually having trouble now where our buses are packed to the point they can't operate on schedule on Saturdays, Saturdays and Sundays. So all of our routes are very busy. Um, we actually talked about last year raising our fares enough to pay for extra service to to address some of those concerns. Um, fare increases, I'm sure, like everywhere, are big political issues, and our, our oversight folks decided not to go with the fare increase, but then we have a transit and parking commission uh, that decided we really had some problems keeping schedules on town, so we had keeping schedules on time. So they approved a very limited fare increase, or we raised the price of some of our passes to raise about sixty thousand dollars. And that sixty thousand dollars we were using to kind of just bump up service on these routes that are just busy, so busy to the point we can't keep on time and we can't keep uh, people. We're passing people up basically, mm -hmm. and actually we're in the in the midst of um, going through our process for getting those services out on the street. We have a public hearing actually in a couple of weeks where we're gonna put our ideas that we're using that money to try to fix a few things. That's going to the public in um, in April. And um, 
we're not quite sure how that's going to go because it's definitely not going to entirely fix the problem because our, our we're just over all of our routes are very busy right now and the interesting thing is even if we had lots of money and lots of drivers and we're able to buy extra buses our garage actually is a hundred and sixty uh, vehicle facility and we have 209 buses packed in there right now so we don't even have even if we had the money to get the equipment we have no place to put them at this moment so we uh, <laughs> we have a lot of problems that are good but uh, bad and I guess if we're going to talk about problems we'd rather have our problems that we have in terms of being over capacity trying to figure out how to expand rather than not having people ride transit. I guess that would be like a big capital plan coming up sometime soon. Yes we're trying to figure out how to do that um, yeah, we really, we're actually what we want in the areas of uh, regional transit authority. We think that's the only way that we're going to be able to really truly expand because we contract out with Middleton, with Fitchburg. Um, we've been looking at Sun Prairie, which these are all municipalities that are kind of around us. And, so, and there's also this epic um, healthcare uh, software uh, employer. And they are out in Verona and they are contracting service with us because most of they have a lot of computer younger generation computer programmers and they're all living in the downtown and they want to you know do the downtown life here in Madison and Verona is a smaller town with this big huge facility right on the outside of it so they are contracting service so their their people can live down here in Madison and then and then they bus out to that that area so um, we think that the only way we're going to really truly expand is to get this regional transit authority to give us some real stable funding so that we can expand and get transit out to all these areas that are contracting with us now and have expressed interest in contracting out with us now because uh, the Epic, for example, we just had a few routes going out there and those got packed. And then we started, we expanded the service actually about six months ago and we put more buses to the amount that we could and then those were packed. I mean, by pack, people standing room only from downtown Madison taking a 30-minute drive out of town where people are just, you know, chest to chest on the bus. So we think to fix that kind of thing and to improve and get these facilities, we need a regional transit authority in the area. So that's what we think is going to help us, and we're not quite there yet. And that's that's really interesting you brought that up because I, I noticed that Madison is run, that Madison Metro is run by the city. Yes. Um, and that's, so I guess that's, um, are there other challenges to that setup? Well, basically it's funding since so the taxpayers pay a, a local share, and um, it's just to get the kind of money that we need, we just don't have the ability to get that, you know, from the tax so you, can only get local, so you can only get local funds, but not, not state taxes. Right, okay. exactly. So um, we really need to get a real stable set of funding funding here so that we can expand like we need to. We're pretty much, we're making we're making do, and uh, there's just our demand is growing and growing, and we're just at this really interesting time where we just don't know how we're going to grow anymore without getting some more stable funding. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you have all the best problems to have. <laughs> we do. We're very excited. We're, when we complain about our problems, they're good problems. Yeah. So um, we're really not complaining. We're just more challenged than complaining. So, I mean, you, you know, with your experience with, with these problems, I mean, what, mm-hmm. do you have suggestions and advice for, for other agencies that are dealing with some of these issues? In terms of funding, I know, I know that everyone would be like, yeah, how do you deal with it? We have no idea. <laughs> I guess you'd say we're just doing our best. We're lobbying you know, for the regional transit authorities. Our general manager does a lot of talks in the community and explains kind of what we need to do here. Um, we, anytime someone approaches us like this, we just say that we are just over capacity and we, um, we don't know how to fix it because we just don't have the equipment to really push forward. Or we don't have the equipment or the facilities to really push forward and address the demand that we have on hand. So. I guess it's just more getting uh, word out to everybody that um, 
to let people know the importance of transit, let them know how many people are riding, and let them know if you still want more people to continue to ride and not drive their cars, that you need to help you know get funding for transit because it is really important and it's really hot right now in the country. When I started, when I started, buses were empty and uh, we were writing little radio jingles, wondering, thinking that would get a few more people on the bus. <laughs> and now we're not bothering with that because we have so many people on the bus, we just don't know what to do. And so, uh, and so, it's, we're trying to figure out more. Just from the marketing angle, we're just working heavily on communicating to all the people that are riding rather than marketing for new folks because as, as great as it is, people are finding us without us trying to lure them in. I mean, it's just really a great, it's just things, times have really changed. Yeah, I mean, you're out there driving these big buses and you know, people realize it's good. Yep. Are you um, are you looking at articulated buses at all, or double deckers? We are looking at articulated buses. We um, think that's we don't have anywhere to put it at the moment, but we've we've test driven a couple articulated buses, especially we took them through. If you travel through the University of Wisconsin, there's some real travel, real challenging roadways that really meander uh, tough, uh, tight areas, and we did take a articulated bus through there just to see if it would work, and it did. And so we would think that's where, if we were to get one, we'd probably utilize it on campus. And we also are looking at um, BRTs in the area. And there's lots of uh, transit studies going on right now. One of them is a uh, BRT feasibility study. And we're just seeing if these bus, if a bus rapid transit service using articulated buses would, would work here in Madison. And that is a study that's currently ongoing. But um, we are hoping that that is something that we can do because... We're to the point now that we just have so many people that are riding, we really need those larger vehicles to get them around. Yeah, and the BRT things would be good because, you know, the more you can speed up the service, and, and the more you can do with what you have. Right. And that's part of one of our biggest complaints about our service is that um, it's so, with the lakes and the way it's all set up, is we do kind of meander around and it's not really direct and we try to do a lot with what we have and so some of the some of the uh, routes through town and through the isthmus, they could be sped up. If we could just do that direct straight line, like in a, a BRT, I think that would help be more attractive to even more people. And then that would be the problem, is that we would need them on these larger vehicles because it, um, it would be more attractive service and more people are going to want to ride. <laughs> and the troubles with, uh, by troubles, I use my air quotes on that, the troubles with uh, high ridership is going to be even more because I think that's just the next step we need to take to make uh, service in Madison even more attractive. Yes, and then it's light rail, and then before you know it, you're a full-fledged subway. And, uh, right, exactly, yeah. yeah. Cool. All right, um, anything else you want to add? Wrap up? Um, no, just like we're really, Madison has never seen transit like this before. We're just really excited, you know, to be a part of it. And it just, I, I don't want to say it snuck up on us, but then all of a sudden one day we've just had ridership where you, you just, every bus you look at, uh, they're full. And then it, it that was during the course of the midday, and then then we started getting complaints that buses were full and passing up at night, and now it's Saturday, so it's just really a challenging time for us, but we're really excited that this is the challenge with, that we have. Cool. So. <laughs> All right, well, thanks for chatting with me. This has been great. No problem. Thanks for coming by. Thanks, and I'm enjoying my visit. Oh, good. Thank you very much to Mick Rush for joining me from Madison Metro Transit. And uh, rest assured, your problems are not unique, and they are good problems to have, as much as transit agencies don't really want to hear that. Um, that's sort of the world that we're in these days, and I, uh, you know, I wonder if the uh, rapid 
the regional transit authority is the answer. Um, it's an interesting question because um, I've always thought that it's it's be- somehow better to have the city operate the agency because then you have more control of what you're doing and you're, you're more focused. Um, but at the same time, you know, having a, a regional agency, you know, makes sense if you have a bunch of different municipalities that you're dealing with and you want to sort of coordinate service and um, make it equitable across the region and and to uh, to have more funding ability. There's, there's certainly downsides to the regional transit authority, and you know, one of those being that you know everybody wants uh, equal service, even where uh, such service may not be justified. And so there's there's a bunch of other issues as well that come up with that. But I hope that uh, the state of Wisconsin at least considers the issue carefully. Right now, regional transit authorities are not allowed in Wisconsin, so that's uh, it's going to be an interesting fight, and we'll see see what happens with that. And if I get any, any news, I will uh, pass that on. Before I wrap up today, I have an email that I received from Xerxes in Vancouver. And uh, Xerxes was talking about bus privatization. And uh, he and I have communicated a little bit before, and uh, he's written in, and I believe uh, I read his email on, on a previous show. Unfortunately, I don't remember which one. No, but he and I have gone back and forth a little bit with email uh, in the past few months. And um, we're, he's very much you know, open to considering privatization, uh, whether it's good or bad. And uh, you know, I have often been a staunch opponent of privatization, and I, I generally continue to be. But um, although I feel that if you, if you are going to have privatization work, then it needs to be very heavily regulated. Uh, but Xerxes sent me a very interesting email, and I have... He also sent a video along with it of uh, the bus system in Singapore. And um, see if I can find the email over here. So just to recap a couple of things that I've said in the past, um, when you know we were communicating previously, I was saying that every model of privatization that I've seen for, for bus companies is, uh, is generally either, uh, at, at best, uh, needs improvement, and at worst, is a complete and total disaster. And uh, so there, I, I'm still um, thinking about reaching out to some people. Maybe um, we can, we can uh, talk about this, get somebody to, who is really familiar with this topic and talk about it in depth. Um, my experience really is in North America. And when North American transit agencies privatize their bus systems, they generally tend to own the equipment and, um, and, and own the uh, facilities, and they just... Out, essentially outsource the operation, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense because you, when you have a transit agency that's, you know, especially a large transit agency, there's not really any benefit to contracting out. Uh, there might be a benefit to contracting out if you have a really, really small agency, like if you have 10 buses. Uh, there might be a benefit there because uh, somebody who has experience in running a transit agency can come in and probably do a, a better job uh, dealing with all of the issues that arise, with the maintenance and the safety training and everything that that the you know, things that a uh, small town would not, by nature, be able to provide at least not very well. So I, I can see how it um, it can work well in in certain places. But I, I'm so that's having said that, my experience really in being in North America, there there's also the British example where um, as as I record this, I. Um, everybody's uh, waxing poetic about Margaret Thatcher, who was uh, just absolutely terrible for 
uh, for people and, you know, working people. And uh, one of the things that she did was privatized the UK bus industry. And it's been a, almost a complete disaster. The ridership has gone down and the service has gotten so much more uh, more competitive and in the sense that uh, services, there are bus companies in, in big cities where, that are um, duplicating routes because they're, they're competing with each other, essentially. And uh, that's not helpful, really, to anyone. Uh, because in the end, what the customer wants is to get from A to B. The customer doesn't have any particular loyalty to Joe's bus or Jim's bus or, or John's bus. It doesn't. None of that matters. A customer wants to be able to use any vehicle that's coming that can help them get close to their destination. And um, so this, you know, that, it was the ideology that, that caused the, the deregulation, and that's usually what drives talk of privatization. Uh, it's the ideology, and then well-meaning people pick up on that and parrot that because they want to save money. And when you when you follow the North American model of just outsourcing the the labor, then the only way you're going to save money is by uh, cutting employee wages. Which is, I mean, and who do you, anybody listening want to get their wages cut? Or you cut back on quality, and service quality, or um, you know, where you don't have as many supervisors out on the street. You don't. You cut back on routes that aren't profitable. You you know you you do everything you can to to make a profit, and um, that's that's not good. So um, so anyway, um, fast forward to just uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, get an email um, from Xerxes says I thought I'd ask for your thoughts on privatization again after seeing an interesting video from Singapore which discussed bus market structure there, and he provides a link to the video which I'll, I'll play in a minute. And uh, there's not a whole lot in it that uh, you really need to see. Um, so the audio should suffice, but I'll put a link up in case you want to check out the actual video. And uh, Xerxes asks, could it be that successful privatization just requires good regulation? It would seem to me that part of the problem when governments privatize services is that they don't step up the proper regulations in turn. And of course, transit is a monopoly or oligopoly which necessi- necessitates regulation. Also, what do you think of the idea of contestability as it applies to transit? Um, and he goes on to say that the East Asian transit systems that he's been reading about, uh, such as in Tokyo, Seoul, Hong Kong, and Singapore, is that they're, they're all highly privatized. Um, and um, so another thing he, he mentions, he says, uh, which brings me to my next point, one of the rail systems I'm interested in is Hong Kong, uh, the MTR, which is a private corporation that is majority owned by the Hong Kong government. In addition to its me- operating its metro system, it also develops property. The railway part is profitable, as is the property development part. So should transit agencies also be property developers? And he gives the example of, in Vancouver, the provincial government just got TransLink, uh, the transit agency, to start a real estate division, which would develop land along new rapid transit routes. And that's a, a really interesting thing. But I think, um, so, so two things. Uh, first, I'll answer the, um, I'll answer that that last question first. Um, in and obviously this goes in you know my opinion based on an experience. Um, should transit agencies be property developers? Well, I mean I feel like if transit agencies should be good at at transit, you know I mean that they should really focus on transit. But there is a a big problem in that. Transit agencies invest in, and build these big projects that raise property values, 
And the public sector never gets any benefit from that. Yeah, you could say, okay, yeah, a little tax revenue and stuff. But, I mean, when we talk about building new rail lines and there's property being built, these luxury condos and, and other things that are, you know, mixed-use retail and all this stuff that's uh, generating millions and billions of dollars for landlords who may or may not even live in the community, but that's beside the point. Uh, this money, where's this money going? You know, there's there's no money that's being reinvested in the transit system to... Uh, provide better service, and you know, of course, that puts strain on the transit agencies because as as the service grows, and and they need more service in these places, then you know they don't necessarily have extra money to do that. Transit is always going to be a losing proposition in terms of money, right? It's always going to cost, with, with a few exceptions, transit is always going to cost more than what it takes in. So, shouldn't transit be able to get something back from from the development? Um, it's, I don't know the best way to go about this. And, and, uh, you know, I wonder about, uh, you can, you can tax these places, but, um, you know, it doesn't always go right back into transit and, um, it can be complicated because if you, if you only tax certain places, well, then that's, um, it's that putting as much of an incentive to develop there. And I think it gets a little complicated, but I like the idea of transit agencies getting money from their development. Uh, from the development that they enable or inspire, incentivize. Uh, but I wonder if there is a better way to do it than making a real estate arm of a transit agency, which, you know, itself is not, uh, it doesn't really specialize in, in real estate. That's that's an interesting thing. Although maybe if you have a city-run transit agency, you can have a city real estate developer department. I don't know, but does that get into, that's, that's, it's not capitalism, right? Because it's a public entity that's developing property for the public interest. It doesn't mean it's bad. I, I think that might actually be good. And I wonder if that might solve some of the land ownership problems that we have. And maybe, maybe we need more public development of land. I, I don't know. Is that, is that too much socialism for people? I, I don't know. Um, that's an interesting debate and an interesting conversation to be had and i think that requires a lot more uh, discussion and and thought um write in tell me what you think of that and i'd I'd be very interested to hear it um the first part of the oh the second the there's a third part of this question which is um that he quotes a blog article from alan levy at uh, pedestrianobservations.wordpress.com and i'll put the, the link here and it's the Post from 2011 is the option of profitable transit. And in the, in the post, uh, Alan Levy writes, there are plenty of routes in the U.S. that, while unprofitable now, could be made profitable with better management and operating practices. And Xerxes asks, should public transit agencies strive for profit? I think no, uh, and very strongly so, because while it's always important to be evaluating your services and trying to do better, uh, I don't think that profit should be the motivator. I think that when you aim for profit, you lose sight of what your objective is supposed to be. And, you know, we've already gotten to that point in many places where uh, budget situations are so tight that we're always looking for every dollar and we're looking to make our services so efficient. And, you know, you should always be trying to make your services efficient to a point and, you know, maximize the resources that you have available to you. Because even if 
uh, if you don't have the same budget crunch that we do now, you're still not going to have infinite resources. Um, and even if you did, you know, maybe maybe some of your resources would might be better spent uh, alleviating world hunger than running bus routes carrying one person, uh, for example. So, I mean, there's always going to be that um, that other demands for for funds, uh, no matter how well funded you are. And I think it's always important to have solid metrics and you know un, unbiased metrics for a person with skills in transit planning to evaluate routes and, and other services and facilities and decide you know, what's working, what's not, what needs improvement. And But if we're always trying to strive for profit, then you know we're going to do a lot of things that don't really help the public. Transit is supposed to be a public service, right? It's not set up to be a business, and there's a reason for that. Just as the city government is not set up to be a business, you know, these agencies are not supposed to be making a profit. That's not what they're there for. They're there to provide public services. So if you focus on being a business, then you're going to put up with a lot of things like high fares, overcrowding, uh, ancient vehicles, uh, minimal maintenance, and and many other things that would really violate the mission of a true public service provider because those are not good for the customer, and it can always be made better. And so um, most large cities have a few routes that are almost profitable and, and may even have some routes that are profitable, but um, that's when you look at uh, operating costs only, um, usually marginal operating costs. But even if you look at all the operating costs, um, you know, like it costs... Marginal cost of service in a, in a large city like New York, Boston, Chicago, Philly, etc., is going to be something like $100 an hour for the marginal cost of service. That means if you're going to add an extra hour of service, it's on average it's going to cost you something like $100 and $110 an hour. It's going to cost you more than that, something closer to $150 an hour, if you include the costs of uh, of oper- you know, all the costs of operations. So having supervisors out on the street, having dispatchers, having people plan the routes, having uh, people accept calls from the public, having people put up information flyers, and all these things. You know, when you really, if you're going to expand your service and put you know more than a couple hours here and there, um, if you're going to really make a big change, then you get into these costs. And then there's also the total cost, which includes the capital cost of the vehicles, which often are not borne that much by the actual agency. You know, a lot of that is often paid by federal dollars, but of course, that's public money as well. So, um, you know, do you count that? If you include the capital cost, there's, I I don't think there's anything in North America that's profitable. Um, I may be wrong, so feel free to send in examples if you know of anything that is profitable. Um, And the only... The only transit services that are profitable are suburban commuter services and intercity services for which high fares are charged. And, you know, these are not routes that, at least the intercity routes, these are not routes that people take every day and and people of all income levels take and ability levels take every day. Um, The people who take intercity and commuter routes every day are people who are uh, generally making higher salaries and, you know, we're choosing to, like, with the example of these uh, commuter buses coming from New Jersey, you know, these are your Wall Street managers and, and, and you know, other people working in, in downtown Manhattan at, you know, big law firms and, and banks and, um, you know, manager types, executives, you know, making, you know, much higher salaries than the, the average local city bus rider. And, and that's an overgeneralization, yes, but, um, but these, are, these services are profitable because they're able to charge 
higher fares and, and have less service too. You know, when you have these commuter service, I mean, it's running, you know, maybe some of these services run, you know, five, six trips in the morning, five, six trips at night. Um, the busier ones run all day, but they have, you know, very limited service in the midday and that service is, is far from profitable. So the more you want a complete service, the more you want a good span of service and a good service frequency throughout the day, uh, affordable fares, high quality service that's you know well supervised and you know the more you want all these things that make good transit service things like you know like facilities like shelters and transfer centers and uh, and all the rest uh, it starts to become less and less profitable and and that's a consideration that a lot of people often don't put in Um, a lot of people don't think about that they just think oh we can uh, you know we can just make it more profitable by uh, making it a little less efficient if we cut a couple trips here and there it's like well you might have only five people on each midday trip. But if you get rid of those midday trips, a lot of people are just going to stop taking the bus or you're just not going to have as many people taking it in, in the rush hours because they're going to say, well, what if I have an emergency and I need to get home in the middle of the day? And, uh, or if I need to stay late after work, um, you know, go out to the bar with some friends or you know, hockey game or whatever. And uh, the same goes with night service in, in cities, in big cities. Uh, you know, you people, these routes that are running across town at 3 o'clock in the morning on the busiest routes, you know, they're lucky if they have five passengers on it at a time in, in most cities. But it's there to provide a baseline level of service so that you know that you can live in the city without a car, uh, in many cases without a bicycle, and you know that you can get around and get to the places you need to go. And if you have something comes up, you need to go somewhere at three o'clock in the morning. You can you can do it. And if you need to, you know, you need to work late, whatever you got to do, you know that that there is transportation for you, and you don't have to seek another option. And uh, and and the same goes, you know, on on all levels too. You know, these the more you cut service back. Um, you know, you, you might have a route that runs every half hour, right? And you're, say, it's a little bit below your, your productivity standard, right? So you're saying, okay, well, we're going to cut this route and we'll just, if we, if we make it every hour, well, then the people who are riding it, uh, it's going to be a little more crowded, but there's still going to be enough room for everyone and, and it'll be okay. Um, and you may think that's fine when you look at the numbers, but you're going to have fewer people riding it because it's going to be less convenient for people. And there are going to be a lot of people. Going to, going to be a lot of people for whom a service every hour is not going to work, or, or you know, the the time, the interval. You know, maybe they got the the bus at four thirty three, and and now you know the next bus is going to be five oh three, and it's going to be too long for them. It's not going to work. So you're going to have a lot of things like that, and uh, the more you cut back, the the more of that you get. So I think generally striving for profit is just a bad idea because you lose sight of what you really should be focusing on, and you're going to have a lot of adverse consequences in, uh, in, in various ways. And of course, last thing, and this might be the most important, is that um, we need to be real here about this, about this idea of profitable transit. Unless we start charging car drivers for the cost that they inflict on the system and, and you know, full fair value so that they take that into consideration before they, and there's a cost to making a car trip, we're never going to make transit uh, even close to profitable um, because it's just transit is not operating in a, in a vacuum. You know, there are not there are not these this pool. There's not this pool of captive riders that have to use transit and no matter what. And then this people this this pool of people who's always going to drive no matter what. There's 
you know, they're all they're all t- working together in the same system. And, you know, drivers will use transit if the conditions are right. And uh, people who are using transit will switch um, no matter what their, their income level is or whether or not they have a car. They will find other ways to get around if transit becomes unusable for whatever that means to them. So we need to think about these things together. And uh, the more that we start thinking about this, start charging car drivers for the cost that they inflict on the system uh, to the point where they think about that uh, before they make their trips. And uh, and also, you know, stop charging people. Right now we're charging people more to use transit than it costs to drive your car if you already own a car. Uh, and I talked about this before. Um, if we really want to get people riding transit, obviously the, the best way to do that is, is to make it free and it will be faster and much more efficient. You want to make it more efficient, that's how you do it. Right, you make it free so that, or at the very least, get a proof of payment fare system so that you're not slowing down the bus by twenty, thirty percent because people are paying at the front door. Um, that's a that's a big deal. So, if you want to, anybody who talks about making transit profitable, um, you know, more efficient, um, let's let's start there. That would be a good a good place to start. So let's see. Last point here. The main point. I, I still the first point. I still haven't gotten to which is that uh, the thought of privatization in, in uh, bus companies in, in Asia. So let me, let me play that video here, or at least the audio from it. Uh, it's, this is talking about Singapore's bus system and how in, uh, in the 60s the, there were as many as 10 bus operators uh, providing service and they were all duplicating each other and it was a big mess. And now there are only two agencies and this video goes into some of the pros and cons of that and talks about the regulation that currently exists. So um, I'll come back and make some commentary on, on the other side if I, if I haven't said it already. Singapore, home to 5 million people. Every day, around 4,000 public buses ply our streets, ferrying us to work, school and play. We commute between 84 mass rapid transit stations spread across four lines covering over 130 kilometers. Total number of taxis on our roads, some 25,000. For all the trips we make on our buses, trains and taxis, do you ever wonder why there are only two public bus and rail operators serving so many people? In contrast, we have seven taxi companies competing for a piece of the taxi pie. To answer this question and understand how market structures and competition affect our public transport policies, let's start with the basics, the market structure continuum. Monopoly, oligopoly, monopolistic competition and perfect competition. At one end, we have Monopoly, a single firm, selling a product or service with no close substitutes, absolute barrier to market entry. Next, oligopoly. A few firms selling homogenous or differentiated products with high barriers to entry. Then we have monopolistic competition. Many firms selling differentiated products with low barriers to entry. And finally, perfect competition. Many competitors selling homogenous products with freedom of market entry and exit. A large part of how we shape public transport policy depends on the nature of service and needs of commuters. Let us illustrate by first looking at public buses. Prior to independence in 1965, there were more than 10 private operators running bus services around Singapore. On the market structure continuum, 
bus services would be close to monopolistic competition characterized by many small firms selling differentiated products. You might think having lots of operators equated to better service. Not necessarily. In reality, competition in the market often resulted in operators neglecting less popular routes. They concentrated on high demand routes. Unbridled competition also led to wasteful duplication of services and inefficient operations due to lack of economies of scale. Poor service was the norm as operators cut corners to reduce costs to survive. Fortunately, this is no longer the case. Today, our bus service has become more of a duopoly. SBS Transit and SMRT Corporation operate our entire public bus network island-wide. The big benefit of having only two operators is that they will be able to reap economies of scale in bus operations and keep their costs lower than if there were many operators. Operators can benefit from economies of scale, such as during purchase of buses, bulk buying of diesel, and cheaper parts and maintenance costs for their fleet. But is there also a downside to having only two operators? What's to stop them from charging high prices and offering poor service at our expense since they have so much market power? This is where regulation comes in. In Singapore, we have set up the Public Transport Council, or PTC, as an independent body to regulate transport fares for both buses and trains. PTC imposes a set of quality of service standards to ensure that service standards are not compromised. With two operators concentrating in different geographical regions, PTC is also able to impose what we call the Universal Service Obligation, or USO in short, on our bus operators. What the USO does is to ensure both operators maintain a comprehensive network of services including unprofitable routes. In other words, no more ignoring Jalan Ulu and only concentrating on popular Orchard Road. One disadvantage of today's bus industry structure is that it only provides yardstick competition which benchmarks the two operators against each other. Going forward, the Land Transport Authority plans to introduce what we call competition for the market. So instead of having bus operators cannibalize each other by competing in the market for individual routes, we have them compete for rights to operate in entire markets. In this case, a package of routes for a fixed period of time. This eliminates wasteful duplication and promotes better integration of services as LTA sets the rules for competition. Competition for the market introduces the element of contestability into the equation. In a contestable market, the number of firms is not important. What is important is that the threat of competition should be sufficient to keep prices low and prevent abuse of monopoly power. As operators stand to lose large stakes if they fall behind the competition, this will drive efficiency, resulting in better services and affordable fares. Our mass rapid transit system evolved quite differently from our bus services. Rapid transit systems tend to exhibit characteristics of a natural monopoly because of the high cost of building and maintaining the necessary infrastructure. 
Natural monopolies occur in industries where there are enormous economies of scale present, such that a single firm can effectively and efficiently supply the market at lower cost than two or more firms. To counter this, the government funds the capital cost of the rail infrastructure, while the operators bear the operating and maintenance costs of running the system. This removes one of the main barriers to entry. When first introduced in 1987, the MRT was initially operated by only SMRT trains, as the network could only support one operator of sufficient scale. But this changed with the introduction of the North East Line, operated by SBS Transit in 2003. The shift to a duopoly allows for the benchmarking of standards between the two operators, while allowing operators to continue reaping economies of scale. This provided a basis from which to drive towards even greater efficiency and better service. As with our bus services, LTA has plans to encourage further contestability in the rail industry. This will be done through shortening of future rail licenses and having competitive tenders for new rail licenses. Incumbent operators are kept on their toes to consistently innovate and provide better service to commuters, due to the greater threat of being replaced by other players, including new ones. As the video points out, there are benefits of having a smaller number of operators. Just like you know, the public sector is is one operator, right? But still, when you have multiple operators, you're still going to have competition. And if you really want to uh, minimize the or remove the negative impacts that result from bus operators competing with each other and you know duplicating each other and all that, then you need to have a centralized you know public agency that determines the services. And therefore, this this kind of privatization is not really going to be attractive to the people who generally tend to prefer privatization because the government is still setting setting the rules and setting the framework. Um, so I don't know. This is um, I don't know if it. I don't really see the advantage to having this kind of system over just uh, one public operator. Plus, what is the incentive of these operators to improve? You know, the video says, "Oh, they need to always innovate and be on their toes and provide good service." But it's like, what? What does that even mean? You know, what is that? Um, what can they do if if the if the government regulates, you know, their routes and and everything else? Then. You know what is it that the operator is going to be able to do besides just like paying people less and um, you know just cutting back on service quality? Uh, I don't know. Maybe you see something different, and you can uh, you know write in feedback at criticaltransit.com, and you can uh, you know share your thoughts. Another thing I wanted to mention is that I don't think that transit is an inherently contestable market.、Um, you know, the idea of contestable markets is that、um, it is it is easy for new people to get into it. So you know,、uh, increasing competition, right?、Um, and perfectly contestable market, according to economic theory,、um, is a market that has no entry or exit barriers, no sunk costs, which would be things that you have to invest up front and and you know. Don't get back, or you know, don't get the investment for a long, a long time. And、uh, number three, access to the same level of technology. And in this case, with with transit, you know, there are entry and exit barriers. If you require people to buy vehicles, well, then you know that's significant.、Um, but even if you don't, you know, you have to train operators. You have to learn the routes. You got to learn the geography. You learn dealing with the customers.、Um, sunk costs would be, you know, things like.、Uh, That you know you can't recover the cost after the firm shuts down. 
so something like a vehicle or something. I mean, you can't. Um, you may make investments, uh, a lot of investments. You know, training and um, and just learning about the service area and and producing maps and and uh, you know all these things that that are you know um, new firms have to you would have to invest in all of that. I'm not satisfied that transit would be a contestable market, and that's why you see uh, a monopoly with something like that. And so again, um, it's important to have the the service regulated in such a way that um, there is uh, a government entity that's deciding the routes and uh, the fares and a number of other things. So um, to that point, you know how attractive is privatization to those people who favor it, given that requirement, um, or is there, is there a way that it can work without that requirement? Um, I don't think so. And the other thing I'll say is that uh, I have, you know, everybody always talks about, you know, inefficiency and, and, you know, all these other, you know, random things that aren't really backed up. But I have yet to see a concrete example of why the public sector is not doing a good job with transit. Um, there are many issues that are outside of transit agencies' control, usually, you know, inadequate funding or political decisions that, uh, you know, make them operate things that they either shouldn't be operating or shouldn't be serving as much as they are. Certainly there are some transit agencies that just, you know, aren't as good as others, of course. I can talk about things that I think are mismanagement, um, you know, but that can happen in the private sector. There's no clear case that, that to me, that, that at least that's been made, that uh, the government, by and large, is incapable of providing good public transportation. So anyway, share your thoughts. Uh, feedback at criticaltransit.com. You can follow me on Twitter and Facebook at criticaltransit. And, uh, you know, let me know what you think. Am I totally wrong on this? Uh, do you have examples of good privatization of public transit? Uh, please please write in and, and let me know. Um, and, uh, yeah, so get in touch. And uh, I'm still working on fixing the website, but hopefully uh, I'm making some progress. So um, stay tuned for any news on that. And coming up soon is going to be some stuff from Minnesota. Um, but before that, hopefully, is going to be my interview with Lacrosse MTU. Uh, director Keith Carlson, and before that uh, is going to be my interview with Madison uh, B-Cycle City Manager Claire Hurley about uh, the bike sharing system in, in Madison. So I'm looking forward to all of that, and we'll talk about some rural transit in Wisconsin as well. So um, thank you for again for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Go to criticaltransit.com for more information and to get in touch. Also, if you find the show useful, please consider going to criticaltransit.com and making a donation to support this work. I uh, can't do it without you, and uh, all these transit tickets get expensive, and there are various hosting costs, which may increase with the site. So uh, please consider supporting in uh, any amount you are able to. And if not, you know, please, or, or even if so, please uh, spread the word. Uh, tell all your friends, colleagues, uh, the people that may be sitting next to you and have no idea that the show exists. Um, please spread the word, and the more people that uh, hear about the show and can participate in the show, the better. So um, thanks again, and we'll talk to you next week.